My subject today is um, the prodigal. You do forgive me with the glasses, because I'm going to struggle there, but I, you know, I can't, if, if I look up, you're just a complete blur, so I'll be doing a bit of this and that. I might get rid of them in the end. So we're thinking our series, just focusing on Jesus and his exalted person and nature and being. And it's been terrific to listen to all kinds of uh, aspects of, of that and to be really fed and nourished in our souls by that. It's been brilliant. And uh, Tim asked me to speak on this, the prodigal. I uh, don't know if you've ever seen it before. That's the famous Dutch artist Rembrandt. That's his depiction of the prodigal up there. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, it's a story that Jesus told. It's a very famous story. Um, but just before I get into it, I just wanted to say a couple of um, preliminary things that are going to help us. Now, one of those things, I think, is one of the most important theological ideas that we can get, however long we've been a Christian, however much we understand or don't understand, I think this first one, this, this preliminary point is really, really important. So here we go. For Christians, what is the primary source of revelation about God? Or to put it another way, if we want to know what God is like, where do we look? If we want to know what God is like, where do we look? And I guess if you'd have asked me that question probably um, up to 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I probably would have said, okay, it's fairly obvious. If you want to know what God is like, if you want revelation about God, that word revelation, it means unveiling, showing, displaying so that you can see. I probably would have said the Bible. That probably would have been my answer. Hint, he's going to say something different. Okay. And then one day, um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, if you read the Bible, that sometimes you read something and it's like, I never saw that there before. I've read this passage so often, I, never, I, I, I missed that point. And I had that experience once when I was reading a particular passage of scripture. And it, it sort of totally turned, up my, turned over my understanding of where we get revelation of God from. It was this. This is from Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In other words, the writer to Hebrews is saying, the Bible. Well, it was the Old Testament in those days. The Bible. But look what it says. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Now look at the next words. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And the impact of, of, of that on me was like, wow. I suddenly saw it that the, the, the principal revelation of God is actually not a book, it's a person. Now, I know we read about the person in the book, but it's much more than that, because we have the spirit of Jesus in us and in the church, and the spirit of Jesus has always been in the church. So when we actually read the Bible, one of the things that is good to do, especially if we're reading the Old Testament, is to say, 
What does this show me about Jesus? What is this telling me about Jesus? Now, I recently, I, I bought a new Bible, um, and it's, it's this one. It comes from the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And one of the things, one of the reasons I bought it was it's very, very good at finding Jesus in the Old Testament text. And if you remember, when Jesus was walking with a couple of um, disciples after the resurrection, it says he showed them everything about himself from the law and the prophets and so on. So whenever you read the Bible, the question you should always ask is, where's Jesus in this? What is this telling me about Jesus? Sometimes it will be by contrast. You know, oh, Jesus isn't like that, he's like this. But Jesus is to be found in the text. And that's a really important point. Now, what it also means is, when we read Jesus' words or look at his actions, what we're seeing and what we're listening to is exactly what God is saying to us. And that is so important. It's not that Jesus was a great prophet and got most of it right. And others have got other opinions that we need to balance it up with. One of the things Jesus said was, every word he says, he says because the Father gives him. Everything he does, he does because that's what he sees the Father doing. And that leads to this. God is exactly like Jesus. And this is the point I would love us... Do you ever sit in a sermon and, and they get to the point where they say, if you remember nothing else, remember this? Okay, if you remember nothing else, remember this. God is exactly like Jesus. So when we read about and listen to and think about and experience Jesus, that's what God is like. God is exactly like Jesus. Um, the other point I want to make, which isn't, is important, but is quite helpful when you're looking at a parable, um, sometime in the 1990s, 1994, there was this guy working for Microsoft and he thought he would invent a way of printing that would be really nice and child-friendly. And he came up with this font, Tim's glowing there, aren't you Tim? You know this, this is in your field. Comic Sans, created by a developer so you'd have a nice, friendly, child-friendly font. So just to explain, I, I teach for two days a week. I teach Thursdays and Fridays. And I've got a class of eight and nine-year-old children. So we do lots of stuff on what's known as an interactive whiteboard. If you're older than about 30, you probably have no idea what that is. Um, but they're, they're brilliant devices. So I can prepare lessons with stuff on it and sort of then flick it up and I can write on it. I can do all sorts of wonderful things because technology is brilliant, Tim. Um, so we, you know, we, we, we have lots of stuff children have to read. We're a very literacy-focused school, as all schools should be. So I've got whiteboard displays. I've got uh, handouts I give to children. Uh, I've got helps all over the wall. And I want children to read them and understand them. Now, just as a contrast, let me show you another font that you can get and do uh, things in if you want. That's an example of a much less clear font. This, this particular one is called Lucida Handwriting. But if you look, you can see how much easier that top one is for children to read than that bottom one, right? It's much easier to read that one than that one. So 
For all work on flip charts, worksheets, and for learning helps around the classroom in, with my year four, my eight and nine-year-olds, what font do I use? Lucinda handwriting every single time. Why? Is it because I'm cruel and I like to torment children? No, no, not at all. Let me explain why. And it, this does have a point, by the way, in case you think I'm just lecturing about education. Um, when we teach, when we learn stuff, what we know is if the stuff the children have to learn is too easy, well, they don't learn anything. Waste of time. But in contrast, if it's too hard, they don't learn anything. So the art of teaching is this. You have to pitch it in there. And it's called the zone of desirable difficulty. The zone of desirable difficulty. It has to be difficult, but not too difficult, if they're going to learn. And that's where all the learning happens. So I do that complicated printing font because when children read stuff, if it's the simple one, do you know what they do? They go, blah, 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 yeah, got it. And they haven't. They've missed it. They don't understand the words. But by giving them a compl complicated printing font, they have to slow down and work it out and read it. And in that time, it, go, it starts to sink in. See, there is a reason behind it. They actually will take time and they will understand more because it's in the zone of desirable difficulty. And I think that's part of the reason Jesus talked in parables. Because I think he was challenging people every time he told a parable. I think he was saying, think about it. Think about it. If you, if, if you think about it, he could easily have sort of just preached everything in a very straightforward way. Now, don't get me wrong, some things are straightforward. You don't have to think too much about love one another. All the pain comes in actually doing it, right? But you don't have to work it out. Oh, now, what did Jesus mean when he, see, when he meant, said love one another? Hmm. Um, no, you don't have to work that one out. But a lot of his teaching was in the, in the form of parables. And every time you read a parable or you hear a parable, Jesus is saying, think about it. Think about it. The Jews have wonderful times with the Old Testament scriptures. They talk about them, they debate them, they discuss them, they argue over them. Sometimes they get really heated in their arguments. I'm talking about, even today, Jewish rabbis and scholars, and then they go out the best of friends. But they love debating the text. And Jesus, remember, was a Jewish rabbi, and he's inviting us to debate the text and think about what we're hearing. So, I'm going to read um, the parable of the prodigal. Jesus continued. Just to say, this is the third of three parables in Luke 15. You've got the parable of the lost sheep, you've got the parable of the lost coin, and you've got the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, 
who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Um, most of us who have been Christians for any length of time will be familiar with that. If, if you're not familiar with it, it's, an, it's a lovely story. And I haven't finished it, by the way. There's a bit more, but we'll come to that later. So as I said, it's the third of three parables. And there's some incredible things to learn about God's love, mercy, grace, kindness. So I'm going to say it again. If you remember nothing else today, remember God is exactly like Jesus and remember God's grace, kindness, mercy and love are absolutely amazing. In fact, let me tell you this, when we get to be before the Lord, Jesus will not say to me, David, you made too much of my grace. Oh, you, you bigged it up too much. My grace isn't as amazing as that. My, my love isn't as big as that. Oh, come on. I won't hear that. I can only hint and point you in the direction of the huge capacity of God's love and his heart towards every single one of us and his grace that he gives us. But I want, to guess, I want us from this parable just to pick up something of that. We do have to face the fact that there is a bit of a contrast. And Rembrandt, the painter... He was really good in his paintings at showing contrast, darkness and light. And the light, the bits that are light, stand out because of the darkness. So he was a master in the use of contrast between light and darkness. And what we need to understand is, we can read that parable and the son gets the money from the father and off he goes and spends it. But actually, the gravity, the seriousness of sin... Basically, what he was saying to his father was, I wish you were dead, give me the money. I wish you were dead, give me the money. I don't care about you, I want the money. I want to go my way. And it's, if you like, it's literally going off into darkness. And this is the heart of what the Bible calls sin is. It's darkness, it's blackness. But it's against that contrast of darkness that we're going to see the amazing grace of God so he was a master Rembrandt in highlighting things and God uses sin to highlight his grace as we will see which brings me to this guy 
please excuse me if I get a bit gross at this moment. Sin, this idea of darkness, can be very much out there. Or we might think, oh, okay, yeah, or I told a lie. Right, I've had a bad thought. I've, I've done this. Oh, yeah, okay. I just wanted to highlight this contrast by highlighting how dark darkness could be. And I wanted to do it by using a real example of a real person. So I'm just going to introduce you to this person. Um, his name, you might know who he is, you might have seen the picture before, he's an American guy. And um, his name is Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Between 1978 and 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer is known to have sexually abused murdered, dismembered, and eaten 17 young men and boys. It was a notorious case. Um, eventually, he was in a state that didn't have the death penalty, so he was eventually given 16 life sentences. Um, and obviously, that meant he was never, ever going to get out of prison again. The point of me saying this, sometimes we talk about evil and we can talk in a bit abstract terms, or we might even say, well, oh, Adolf Hitler, Nazism, that was evil. But I want to bring it to the individual human heart where darkness can actually lead. This is where darkness can actually lead. Sin isn't a light thing. Even our little things that we do wrong is not a light thing, it's darkness. And we cannot begin to grasp the immensity and the glory and the loveliness of God's grace until we first recognize darkness. Now, sometimes when we think about sin, it can perhaps lead us to think this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Um, years ago, when I used to preach in a completely different environment and a different church, I know I've preached this. I know I've used this. Sometimes you hear, God is too holy to even look upon sin. So, as I painted this picture of sin being such utterly horrible stuff, even the, the things that we excuse ourselves for, sin is still darkness. God is too holy to even look upon sin. It's actually a slight misquote from Habakkuk. God is too holy to look upon sin. And the idea is, sometimes people get this idea that God is so holy that he can't stand to have us in his presence because our sin will infect him. So he's got to keep us at a distance. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? Anyone think they know what that might be? Let me tell you a story. 1936 or 7, I think it was, a Scottish scientist was working with bacteria because bacteriological illnesses were responsible for killing millions. So there was a great desire to see if anything could be done to try and... I don't think the tree's coming. I think we're all right, guys. <laughs> to see if they could do, do something about bacteriological diseases. So he had cultured um, lots of dishes like that with bacteria in. If, you, if the, the, the white spots down here, they're little colonies of bacteria. So he had all these little dishes with the bacteria in that he was going to experiment on. But one of them got contaminated accidentally. What had happened was some spores of mould had accidentally landed on one of these dishes. 
And the mould had started to grow. That's that big white lump at the top. Well, you get various stories. I think the authorised version is he suddenly realised something. Um, I think the unauthorised version is he was about to throw it away when his lab assistant said, hold on. Because what he or his lab assistant noticed was that the colonies of bacteria nearest to the mould were dying. The mould was killing the bacteria. Of course, the mould's name was penicillium. And within 10 years, this is Alexander Fleming, the scientist responsible, from that discovery, he developed penicillin, which was the first antibiotic. The point is, there is a point, the point is, bacteria couldn't survive in the presence of penicillin. So this thing, God is too holy to look upon sin, actually is round the wrong way. Sin cannot survive in the presence of God. Sin cannot survive in the presence of God. It's just as darkness can't survive in the presence of light. You see it right back into the Old Testament. Do you remember the story, if uh, uh, you're familiar with it, when Adam and Eve go wrong... Um, Eve is persuaded by the serpent to eat the apple, or whatever it was. You know, we say apple, the fruit. Gives a bit to Adam. So they fall into sin. What's the first thing they do when they fall into sin? They go and hide. They make aprons for themselves to hide their naughty bits, and off they go into the woods. Because they know God comes to walk with them. And they're afraid. In the story, you may have read it, and you may have heard this. God comes walking in the garden. Adam, where are you? Sort of like the teacher voice I have sometimes when I'm looking for a miscreant in the playground. Boy, where are you? Okay. And we can hear that as God's voice. But Jesus transforms this story. And what I want you to see is in that story, when Adam and Eve have sinned and they're hiding from God, and God comes walking in the garden, hear God's voice differently, because this is God's voice to every single sinner. Adam, where are you? It's the voice of a loving father who is passionately concerned with every single one of his children. It's the voice of a passionate father looking for those that he loves. And read the whole conversation, if you get a chance, read the whole conversation in Genesis in that light. There's, um, if I can just illustrate, we sometimes think this happened in the Garden of Eden. There's Adam and Eve, there's God, face to face in fellowship. Hi guys, did it get... You got sent home? Bad behaviour. Oh, this is just right for you. We're talking about sin. Fantastic. <laughs> Welcome back. We're actually glad you're back, considering the weather. So we have sometimes this idea. Here's, here's Adam and Eve having lovely fellowship with God. Adam and Eve sin, so God does this. 
that's not what happens. Adam and Eve having fellowship with God. Adam and Eve sin. This is what God does. And Adam and Eve and God and humanity, people, you, me and God and then we will and God because he is a relentlessly pursuing gracious merciful God who loves you more than you can ever know or understand and he will not leave you there and that's exactly what Jesus showed you remember when Hannah preached on Jesus the friend of sinners this again gives the lie to the idea that God is too holy to even look upon sin because when God came what did he do he went straight to be with sinners he made it his objective to spend as much time as he could with sinners i.e. ordinary people like you and me right the ones who had a trouble with that, the ones who thought God was too holy to look on, on sin, were the Pharisees. That's why they didn't get Jesus. Do you remember Hannah talked about that? Simon the Pharisee couldn't get it. You know, if this man was sent from God, he would know this woman's a, 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 a prostitute, a sinner. But actually, no. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus, the friend of sinners. So, for example... The sinner, the woman at the well, she'd had, what was it, five husbands and the man she was living with at the moment, she wasn't married to. So scandalising her community that she had to go and get water at a time when no one else was there, which is when Jesus bumped into her. And Jesus wasn't too holy. He did this. Woman at the well, deep in sin, Jesus, because Jesus came to seek and save the lost and heal sinners. The woman caught in adultery. You can imagine the story. She's caught in the act of adultery and the religious leaders drag her to Jesus. They don't drag him to Jesus. Whoever he was, he got scot-free. Something wrong there, isn't there? She was dragged to Jesus, condemned by religion. But what did Jesus do? He was without sin, cast the first stone. They all went, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. God is not a God interested in condemning. He's a God interested in healing. This is what Jesus shows. And the woman caught in adultery... We don't know her story beyond that, but I, I want to believe that was the tr transformation in her life, the healing from sin. The sinful woman at Simon's house we heard about from Hannah. And of course, Zacchaeus. Yeah, do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? A tax collector, worked for the Romans, swindled, made huge amounts of money, pots of money by taking too much from people. Jesus comes right into his face. There's Zacchaeus, stuck up a tree, 
watching Jesus go by and Jesus goes right to where he is and confronts him. Sin, grace. Grace comes to deal with sin because he loves the sinner. Zacchaeus is transformed. And of course, in case we write off the wicked Pharisees, so-called, the religious guys, the very worst one of them in the end, Jesus confronted and transformed with grace. So there was Saul, breathing out threats, murdering, destroying the church wherever he could, and here comes Jesus. No. Grace transforms even a religious sinner like Saul. And religious sinners are the worst kind. And Jesus transforms him. Grace is more amazing than you or I can understand. In fact, grace can be absolutely outrageous. And if you've never been a bit troubled by grace, you haven't yet gone far enough into it. Sometimes grace should make you think, what? That's not fair. That's not right. There's something wrong there. Let off? Which brings us to the rest of the parable, because there were two sons. So while the younger son went off, spent his half of the living, came back with this beautifully prepared speech, incidentally, I don't think he'd repented when he said, I'll go back to my father because I'll be okay there, I, I think he was still calculating and self-centred. I think he's still fairly contemptuous of, it, of his father. I think he was still, you know, hadn't come through. He comes back to his father, who makes all that wonderful fuss of him, puts the robe on him, puts the ring on him. I think the repentance comes when the son finally believes, my father actually really does love me. And he goes into the party. But his brother comes back, hears all the fuss, and says, what's going on? And then he's told, your younger brother, and he knows his younger brother's taken all the dosh that father gave him, spent it, wasted it on prostitutes, drinking, whatever. You're throwing him a party. And he goes outside. He will have nothing to do with it. This grace is too outrageous. It's a disgrace. A disgrace. It's a disgrace. What's he doing having a party? I've, I've, I've laboured for you all these years. You didn't even give, give me a measly goat so that I could eat it. Anyone ever had goat? There's a place that sells goat. Is, is that any good? Yeah, oh, it's, oh, it's quite nice then. Yeah, all right. So having a goat, curry goat, that might have been quite nice. But not even a goat. This, the, the younger son's getting the ox. Blow me. Not even a goat. Terrible. In fact, relating to some other things Jesus has said, isn't he in the outer darkness wailing and gnashing his teeth? Or if you think about the parable where you've got the two people, you've got the one guy who's let off a huge fortune of a debt, but then he won't forgive the other servant a tiny debt. And then the master throws him into prison. I think we've got a little picture of that here. 
The prison, well, it's outside the party. And the son's put himself there. Yeah, he's put himself there. And you can see in the parable it says, and he will be subject to the tormentors until he's paid every penny. Some of you might be familiar with that parable Jesus tells. Okay. So the guy who's forgiven a huge amount in the parable won't forgive a servant who owes him a tiny bit. So the master puts him in prison and says, right, you've got to pay the whole debt that you owe me, which is billions. And in it, he says he's subject to the torturers. Well, that, I think, is a bit of a picture of it. He's in the outer darkness, the prison, and he's with the torturers. The ironic thing, of course, is that his father is the one who's doing the torturing by speaking words of grace and forgiveness to him. We had to celebrate this son of mine was lost and is found. The torture for the older son was seeing the grace of the father, the loving heart of the father. And that's what grace can sometimes do for us. It can, it can cause us to think, no. That person, no. Think, who do you not want to be sitting next to at the feast in the kingdom? Hands, stop it. <laughs> Who? <laughs> You'll be there. Who? But think seriously. Who's receiving grace is going to outrage you? Who's offended you that it's going to make you think, what? No. Nineteen ninety-four, following his profession of faith in Jesus, Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized as a Christian. The pastor who baptised him often had been asked, well, was he sincere? And the pastor, he, was a, he wasn't a prison chaplain, he came in from outside, he was a church pastor, he said, yeah. He was, I spent time with him, I chatted with him. He sincerely repented and put his faith in Jesus. He was murdered a few months later, Jeffrey Dahmer, but not before he'd put faith in Jesus. Now, if you think of the number of victims he had, fathers, mothers, related to the victims, friends, whatever, I bet some of them are Christians. What's it going to be like for them in the party in the kingdom of heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer? That's the challenge of grace, God's amazing grace. We sort of rank ourselves, you know, when it comes to sin, I'm, all right, I'm a sinner, I'm there. Not like some people, they're up there. And others, whoa, way up there. No, we're sinners. We all need grace. There's not a single one of us who does not need the grace of God. And there's not a single one of us who has refused the grace of God. Not a single one. Every one of us. The thing we learn from Jesus, this parable, and the whole life and ministry of Jesus is this. mustn't forget the apostrophe because I teach English. God's love is cross-shaped. You will get no clearer picture. You remember I said God is exactly like Jesus. You will get no clearer picture of what God is like than the cross. You see no clearer picture of what God is like 
than Jesus on the cross. What does scripture say? God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. God is there. Every time we've sinned and every time we sin, it's as if we bang the nails in. And we bang the nails in, we tell a lie. We bang a nail in and Jesus, God in Christ, breathes out, I forgive you. And we have a hateful thought and it's like pulling the crown of thorns down on Jesus' head and Jesus breathes, I forgive you. And we fail to do the right thing for the person in need. We don't feed the hungry, clothe the poor. And it's as if we spit on Jesus and abuse him. And Jesus says, I forgive you. I forgive you. God's love revealed in Jesus, revealed in the parable, revealed throughout his ministry. It's self-giving. The love that God demonstrates for us in Jesus is self-giving. God, in Christ, gave himself completely and he calls us to give ourselves for one another. It's radically forgiving. Radically. Radical means rooted. Deeper rooted than the tree that went down out there. I knew I, I could get it in. Whoa! <laughs> that wasn't very deep rooted. But the forgiveness of God goes to the depths of your person. And if you think there's anything in your life that is beyond the touch of God's forgiveness, you're wrong. Because God's love is radically forgiving, co-suffering. There's not anything you go through that Jesus hasn't been through and doesn't go through with you. God's love revealed in Jesus, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. So for the third time today, I'm going to say, if you remember nothing else today, remember what the love of God is like. Let's pray.